Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, in a major reversal, the border wall is back, now under President Biden. And it was 50 years ago that Jerry Jeff Walker redefined Texas music. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Building a wall along the southern border was the signature issue that helped Donald Trump win the presidency. In the 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden promised that he would stop the wall building. But now, as president, the construction of the wall in South Texas is beginning to restart. This week, the Biden administration announced that they waived 26 federal laws to allow border wall construction, marking the administration's first use of this sweeping executive power to pave the way for building more border barriers. Speaking to reporters in the Oval Office, Biden said the border wall construction was beyond his control. Beyond the border wall. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Do you believe the border wall works? No. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said the wall building is moving forward, but there is no administrative reversal. I want to address today's reporting relating to a border wall. There is no new administration policy with respect to the border wall. Allow me to repeat that. There is no new administration policy with respect to the border wall. From day one, this administration has made clear that a border wall is not the answer. Nevertheless, Mayorkas also said that the current immigration chaos on the border has created a, quote, an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. This new stretch of border wall is set to be built in Stark County, which is in Congressman Henry Cuellar's district. I spoke to the border Democrat about the building of Biden's wall. Well, you know, first of all, I understand I'm on appropriations and I do understand uh, the Impoundment Control Act of 1974 that forces him to spend the money that, you know, the Trump administration or the Congress had, a Republican Congress had had, uh, instructed him to do that. That I understand. But what I don't understand, and I'm still trying to get an answer from the administration is why did they have to waive uh, the environmental laws? There's nothing that forces them. I saw one of the responses on the news. They said, well, you know, we have to do that so we can move on it. Wrong. They can still go with the the process. They can still follow all the environmental laws. Nothing forced them to waive the environmental laws. That's the part that I don't have an answer and does upset me if nothing forced them to do that. This will be going in your district in Stark County. We're talking about building the 20 miles of border wall. Does that make much of a difference? Well, you know, uh, the answer is, what, 17 miles that they're looking at. uh, They're going to be using what we call jersey fencing, uh, which means that they don't dig the ground. They just lift it 
uh, like those dividers you have in the highways uh, with a fence on top. They lift it, they move it around. So there will be less damage uh, on, um, on the environment. But nevertheless, uh, there are heat maps that I have I've shown uh, to my colleagues and to the public that shows you that in the areas that you have fencing, you have the highest crossings in those areas because the fencing, uh, as you know, the international border is right in the middle of the river. The fence along the river is usually about a quarter or half a mile away from the border. So what they do is they cross, they touch the border, the riverbanks, they're already in the U.S. They walk uh, up a half a mile away. They wave at the cameras and wait for Border Patrol because the profiles of these people coming in large numbers are people that are asking for asylum. So therefore, it doesn't stop them. People need to understand that it doesn't stop them from doing that. What we need to do is put um, technology, personnel, but more importantly, two things we need to do. One, we need to have real uh, consequences, and they need to deport people because most of those people, uh, only 10% are going to be allowed in under the asylum law. They need to be deported. They need to show that they're being deported. And the, the second thing is they have to do their work with Mexico, like what happened in 2015 under Obama, 2019 under Trump, where Mexico did its stop job and they stopped people from coming in. Those two things, uh, deportations and stopping them uh, at the southern border with Mexico will help uh, the situation. How do you see this working out politically for Biden? Well, I think what's happening is that, you know, a lot of us on the border have been complaining about the migration for so many years. We have. Um, and uh, But now you have people with larger megaphones, you know, the mayors of New York, the mayors of Chicago, the governors from New York and Illinois, and now they're saying, hey, uh, we got a problem. So now you have more voices uh, with megaphones that are saying, hey, you got to do something about it. So I think that's one of the reasons why they waive the environmental laws to move on this quicker, not on the on the funding part of it, because his hand was forced by that. Uh, but I think he's now listening to more Democrats um, across the country. Congressman Henry Cuellar is a Democrat representing part of the Texas border region. For more on the Biden administration's decision to move forward with expanding the border wall, I spoke with Nick Miroff, a reporter for The Washington Post. Well, what was significant about yesterday's announcement is that for the first time, the Biden administration is waiving environmental protections and conservation laws in order to expedite border wall construction. And uh, and also for the first time, referring to that uh, fast, fast track uh, construction path as an urgent necessity to stop illegal crossings. Um, and so we haven't really seen the, this administration, you know, which made uh, such a point of freezing construction when President Biden came in. We haven't really seen them talk about meeting uh, that, that, those barriers uh, for the purposes of stopping uh, illegal entries. It seems like the Biden administration or President Biden himself is saying, is saying two different things simultaneously. Border walls don't work, yet this is urgently needed. Is that right? That is right. And I think it reflects the, 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 the confusion and ambivalence within this administration about some of the basics of immigration enforcement. Um, you know, for a large part of President Biden, President Biden's base, 
um, they're simply not comfortable with with uh, some of the the tools of immigration enforcement, and it's always difficult for the president to talk about it. He was, uh, you you know, some listeners will recall, was attacked on the campaign trail for, uh, you know, the, the way that the Biden, that the Obama administration, when he was vice president, uh, had deported so many so many people, and so. Um, you know, he he made a very big point when he was running for office that he was going to be different than the Trump administration in this. And so his team is very sensitive to uh, accusations that they're being just like Trump. And what could be more Trumpian than, you know, waiving environmental laws to build more border wall and saying you need it to stop illegal entries and for the purposes of, you know, protecting the safety of you know, border communities. So Biden is saying he this is he's being forced to do this because Congress appropriated this money specifically for this task. What if he didn't do it? What if he just stood by and and, and not built a wall? Well, I think you know the 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 choice here was is to is to waive these these laws, right? I mean, um, uh, it's true that Congress appropriated this money and 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 that you know is what the Department of Homeland Security is directed to spend it on, but the decision to to uh, you know, to issue these waivers and to describe the wall uh, as a as an urgent necessity that that is you know from his that's on his administration, um, and so that's that's part of the reason it sounds like uh, you know there's a, a real mixed message coming from from the White House, and you know I think it, it that reflects again this kind of disconnect between the the politics of immigration enforcement and then the kind of logistical and operational necessities that, you know, U.S. agents are saying that they have and their desire in particular to, um, you know, to, to, to close up some of these segments where they think, you know, too many people are coming. The urgent need is coming from Venezuelans who are turning up on the southern border by the thousands. Now, the Biden administration is trying to work with the Venezuelan government where we don't exactly have uh, Good relations with, or even diplomatic relations with, at all, uh, to, to, for deportation flights. Why is that a big development? Yeah, well, I mean, Venezuelans are the largest group. Uh, you know, I think, think last month, but uh, are one of the largest groups. But they are, certainly aren't anything like a, a majority of the people who are coming, and definitely not in the South Texas areas where uh, where these barriers are going to go up. Um, but this in, this announcement is is a big deal in the sense that one of the biggest reasons that more than, you know, nearly 500,000 Venezuelans have crossed the border in the last uh, three, four years is that there was, you know, the U.S. had very little ability to send them back to their to their home. And, uh, you know, the United States wasn't even, you know, recognizing the legitimacy of the of the Maduro government in Venezuela. Um, and for the past you know decade, more than over the past decade, more than seven million Venezuelans have left their home and fled the, you know, economic and political turmoil there. So the pool of potential migrants to the United States is, is extremely large. And I think, you know, for the administration, this is a big deal and that they think they can start to deter um, some of these illegal crossings and get Venezuelans to be more compliant with their 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 border management strategy of, of creating, you know, more ways for people to enter the country legally while threatening, you know, deportations and other penalties for people who uh, don't take advantage of those opportunities and, and cross the border illegally. But this does seem to catch Biden in another contradiction. He's willing to provide TPS, temporary protective status, to, for some Venezuelans because they're fleeing a government that is a tyrannical and uh, is failing them. 
of gross human rights violations, yet he's also willing to send people back to that country. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, just two weeks ago, Biden issued the biggest temporary protected status designation in U.S. history and um, and said, you know, it was unsafe to, to send those people back and it, extending, you know, legal status to nearly 500,000 Venezuelans. Um, but that is, you know, only for people who arrived up until July 31st. And so these new deportation flights are going to be aimed at, at people who, uh, you know, who cross illegally, um, you know, uh, now or, or starting August 1st. And, uh, you know, I think at that, again, that reflects sort of the, you know, some of these, these, these struggles uh, that this administration is facing in terms of trying to be more humane um, at the same time um, that it, you know, it knows that it needs to have some immigration enforcement component. It needs to be firm um, if it doesn't want this problem to continue spiraling out of control. Nick Miroff is a reporter for The Washington Post. His recent byline is for the story, Biden officials will resume Venezuela deportations, extend border wall. When it comes to experiencing trauma from gun violence and mass shootings, psychologists tell us that you don't have to have firsthand direct contact with the active shooter event to be traumatized by it and then suffer from it. If you've had some association with the gunshot victims or that location where there was an active shooter, that's more than enough to trigger you. Such is the case with the May shooting in Allen, Texas. The Nazi-inspired shooting happened at a shopping mall, but the entire community is realizing they have healing to do. Kate Yarray's Carolyn Love has the story. People flocked to the Allen Premium outlets last week. Moms pushed their babies in strollers, and shoppers browsed the racks at stores like H&M. There's a big rusty orange stain on the concrete outside of the store. Cheryl Jackson says she noticed it immediately. I was looking going, is that blood? A gunman shot and killed eight people at the outlet mall last May. Several victims were killed outside the H&M. Jackson graduated from Allen High School in 1986. She spent her childhood playing with the other kids in the neighborhood until the streetlights went out. The last thing on her or anyone else's mind was gun violence. That's not what Allen's associated with. So when you hear gun violence in Allen, it's just like, what? In addition to the eight victims shot at the mall and the gunman who was shot by police, at least 17 more people have died as a result of gun violence since the start of 2023. Seven of those additional deaths involved two murder-suicides that happened within days of each other. The rest were suicides. Nicole Golden says that's not surprising. She's the president of Texas Gun Sense, which advocates for gun reforms. There are everyday gun deaths, whether due to domestic violence, uh, other forms of interpersonal violence, suicide, that really are major, major contributors to the high numbers of gun deaths that we see. Nationwide, most gun violence victims die by suicide, and the number of gun suicide deaths hit a record high last year, according to data from the CDC. Golden says mass shootings tend to get more attention than the everyday impact of gun violence that claims the lives of thousands more Americans every year. A lot of these deaths, when it's one or two people, they just don't hit major news headlines, and people just may not be aware of them. Close family members often don't know when a loved one is struggling. 
A man who died in a murder-suicide in Allen made small talk with his mother before she went on a walk, according to an Allen police report. Nothing seemed wrong, but she came home to a locked house and later called the police. Her son, his wife, and their two children were all dead. A few days later, a mother and her two children were found dead at Allen Spirit Park in another incident reported as a murder-suicide. Christina Coltus says mental health issues and family violence can be isolating, especially in suburban areas like Allen. She's the CEO of Hope Store New Beginning, the county's family violence center. There's a lot of more stigma or or maybe reward to have the perfect picture stay perfect. Almost as many people died in the two murder-suicides that happened around Labor Day weekend as at the mall, including four children. But Jackson says those deaths haven't been talked about as much. That's the thing about these type of communities. You really don't want that kind of stuff to hit in the news. There's help for people who've been traumatized by gun violence. And the County Mental Health Authority Life Path Systems has even provided free services at its Center for Healing for anyone impacted by the mall shooting. Danielle Sneed from Life Path Systems says recovery from trauma takes time in a united front. It doesn't have to be on one person or one entity to help a a community heal. It'll take all of us. Jackson agrees. It's just a matter of us coming together as a people like we always did when we were a small town with one railroad track. Those are the days Jackson says she treasures when everyone knew each other's names. I'm Caroline Lovin Allen. Texas school districts are only second to Florida in the number of books banned in classrooms and libraries during the recent school year. Books being banned in Texas include The Diary of Anne Frank and The Hobbit. KUT's Becky Fogel reports on how young people are watching their favorite books disappear and they are worried about what the future holds. Carlos Barron says books play an important role in young people's lives. So in general, I think books are sort of a second home to uh, some kids growing up. Baron is 18 and graduated from Eastside Early College High School in May. He says one of the books he saw himself in while in ninth or 10th grade was Aristotle and Dante discovered the secrets of the universe about two Mexican-American teenagers in El Paso. It was really cute seeing like two Mexican boys being represented in such a love, cute love stories. And like I feel, I said, I feel represented in that storyline. So I was like, that's so cute. Barron is worried other students won't have the same access to books that he did because attempts to censor what's available in school libraries are on the rise. Sebastian Deanda, who also graduated from Eastside Early College High School this year, is worried too. Deanda also points out people trying to restrict books in schools haven't been in school in decades. They haven't created this connection with the students. They don't know how the students are, how they feel. Deanda and Barron are both part of Youth Rise Texas. The Austin-based group opposed the law the Texas legislature passed this year to ban, quote, sexually explicit books from school libraries. House Bill 900 would also require students to get permission from a parent or guardian to check out books deemed sexually relevant. The bill's author, Republican State Representative Jared Patterson, says the goal of the law is to protect kids and empower parents. He spoke on the Texas House floor back in April. Books are some of the most powerful 
experiences for our children. The intent of this legislation is to ensure that we, that the content we are providing to our youth, notably provided by taxpayer dollars, is the content we want the next generation seeing. Baron says some adults might feel like they're protecting kids by keeping certain books from them. But here the thing is, is like, what is sensitive topics? Like, why is being gay such a sensitive topic? It's already had an impact across the state. Back in June, months before it was set to take effect, KDISD paused the purchase of new library books and put recently purchased ones in a warehouse. And the Houston area district isn't the only one in Texas to take action in response to HB 900. Fort Worth ISD students are back at school, but all of the libraries are closed. The district says it's reviewing every single book at campus libraries. Opponents of HB 900 and efforts to ban books say they disproportionately impact books featuring people of color and LGBTQ plus characters. Maggie Stern is with the Children's Defense Fund of Texas. What we come back to is that children have rights to read freely and to find books that spark their imagination, right? And let them explore uh, new ideas or concepts that they might be unfamiliar with. Stern also says kids not only have a right to read what they want, but also to privacy. Lots of students have supportive parents who actually want them to read these books, right? But the students who most need them, who are most vulnerable, have unsupportive or even abusive parents who it really can harm them if their parents know what they're reading about, right? Deonda says for him, books did provide a safe space to learn about himself. Because it was certain topic that I can attack with my family because I wasn't feel like that um, secure to talk about it, you know, because like maybe my family doesn't gonna accept me or maybe my family gonna like judge me. The push to ban books continues. Just last year, Texas led the nation in book challenges. I'm Becky Fogel in Austin. It might seem like an obvious thing that Texas would have its own music scene with artists who find ways to capture the wild and unconventional spirit of the state. But there was a time when such a thing did not exist. Music came from Nashville and from L.A. And it wasn't until the one-of-a-kind album that broke through changed things. That was 50 years ago, and it was Jerry Jeff Walker's Viva Tierlingua. TPR's Jack Morgan has the story. Ah, buckaroos. Scamp Walker time again. Yeah, I'm trying to slide my body once more. Scamp Walker is actually Jerry Jeff Walker, and it's August 18, 1973. He's not in a plush West Coast studio. He's singing in a sweltering 100-degree barn in downtown Lukenbach, Texas. According to the exhibit's curator, Hector Saldana, Jerry Jeff isn't exaggerating. People have to understand, he was literally a hitchhiking musician. Jerry Jeff was very much a Ramblin' Jack Elliott sort of singer, a cross between a cowboy and a, and a sensitive Bob Dylan singer-songwriter. This record was called Viva Terlingua, which those who know Texas music best consider it near or at the top of quintessentially Texas music. And if you want to understand what happened in Austin going back to the early 1970s, this album, Viva Terlingua, is your great explainer. Joe Nick Petoskey, author and raconteur, knows Texas music like few others. He's written major books on Selena, Stevie Ray, and Willie. And in 73, Willie Nelson and Doug Somm famously 
had moved to Austin, but they were kind of minor players. While Willie Nelson was a very successful Nashville songwriter, Saldana says the Willie we know today wasn't that big a deal in 73. I mean, no one really would have guessed that Willie Nelson would become this cultural pop icon phenomenon. On the other hand, Jerry Jeff Walker had carved out an interesting career. Who was this person prior to 1973? Well, it was quite a decade that he had before that. And in that late 60s period, he writes Mr. Bojangles. I knew a man Bojangles and he danced for you. While Bojangles was never a hit for Walker, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's version was top ten. But Walker seemed to have wearied about that time of being the hitchhiking troubadour. Potosky says that he crossed paths with someone who became an unlikely friend, an old man named Hondo Crouch, who lived in Luchenbach. It all started there, and you understand at that time, Luchenbach was truly a ghost town. It was a little bitty settlement that had been abandoned and and the guy that Gary Jeff idolized, Hondo Crouch, who was a great character, had found Luchenbach, bought it, and started kind of, you know, hanging out there. And Jerry Jeff had an idea. Why not bring a remote recording truck to Luchenbach to record his next album live? They went out there to record, rehearse, hang out, you know, get high. They used bales of hay for the sound baffles. Despite the fact that Luchenbach is 400-plus miles from Terlingua, the town found a place in the album's title. To me, what makes Viva Terlingua so great is that he really hit his voice on that record. You know, I mean, I think he found his voice and he found his comrades in arms with the Lost Gonzo Band. The Lost Gonzo Band gave him the groove and the backup vocals that would elevate the quirky grouping of songs written by Jerry Jeff and some of his favorite singers. Saldana said one song in particular has its roots in Walker's past. Its haunting feel is reflected in the music and lyrics. But the song at its heart is about Jerry Jeff's uh, grandfather who died when he was a teenager. He witnessed that death. It was a uh, a farm accident where uh, a cart uh, rolled on top of his grandfather and so the wheel is you know literally and figuratively the wagon wheel that was spinning when jerry jeff came upon that scene the steering failed and he crashed the rail he laid there still for the sound of the wheel that kept spinning round Walker wrote five of the album's nine songs only two on the album were recorded live in front of the lukenbach audience most of the album is country, but country with a rock and roll edge to it. Potosky says this was largely uncharted territory that only the zeitgeist of Austin and the hill country allowed. They were making up a new kind of music, a new kind of sound in Austin. And it was loose, it was rocking and raucous, it was unlike any kind of country rock that had come out of L.A. People like Linda Ronstadt, Blind Burrito Brothers, Eagles, this was not that. Previous to Viva Trilingua, Texas had lost a lot of good musicians who moved to Nashville or L.A. And what Jerry Jeff started with Viva Trilingua was kind of changed that migration. People quit leaving Texas and they started coming to Texas. Viva Trilingua signaled you can come to Austin and do your own thing and maybe get away with it and you might find an audience. One last crazy fact. 
the song that became a hit wasn't even sung by Jerry Jeff. I wanna go home with the armadillo. Gonzo band member Gary P. Nunn's London Homesick Blues became a standard and was used for the Austin City Limits theme song for the next three decades. Viva Trilingua itself is still the gold standard for Texas singer-songwriter albums. Ironically, it took a New Yorker to make it happen. How crazy is it that this New York guy made the Texas record, the quintessential record, out of all of them, and did it in Texas at Lukenbach? Years before we were singing about, let's go to Lickenbach, Texas. The Whitliff Collections is on the top floor of the Alkek Library at Texas State University in San Marcos, and they're open seven days a week. I'm Jack Morgan in San Marcos. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. Email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. You can download and subscribe to us wherever you get cool podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.